Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we created Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. You have Grace and Clara in your ears and we have a fantastic episode for you today. We are joined by our new I Quit Sugar expert for the Gut Rebalance Program, Natalie Douglas. Driven by her own journey through challenges such as eating disorders, distressing periods, IBS, depression, thyroid complications and various food sensitivities, Natalie is dedicated to aiding women in achieving their health objectives and uncovering the root cause of their symptoms. These personal struggles served as a catalyst for her transformation into a proficient authority on thyroid hormone and gut health. In this episode, we dive into a comprehensive conversation exploring the interconnection of these bodily domains and their intricate ties to gut health. Nat, thank you for joining us today. Could you share with our listeners why you pursued this career? Well, a long journey and an ongoing journey, I would say. Uh, The reason why I first got interested was actually because of my own issues in all three of those areas. So it was a combination of that. And I, I honestly think sometimes there's no greater motivator than trying to fix your own health. And then from there, when I first started clinical practice, it really just was what was coming through the door. And so you know, I guess just by treating what was in front of me, I was almost forced to just get better and better at treating that. And it's such a common trio, like that rolls together. So what were the symptoms that made you think there was something wrong in your body? Probably my first issue was that through my teenage years, I actually had an eating disorder. And so as you can imagine, like really depriving your body of essential nutrients through very formative years where a lot of the health foundations are getting laid down meant that I really did not set myself up well. So that was, I guess, a predisposing factor. And then I started to get all these gut symptoms. I had a parasite. So I was, had issues with bowel motions and um, bloating and gas and pain treated that. And then um, from there, from all that stress that my body went under, I still hadn't had my cycle return. So there was clear hormonal imbalances that were happening. And at the same time, some thyroid imbalances that came into play with that. And so, you know, not having a period, feeling really tired, losing hair, um, feeling like I was um, putting on weight despite my best efforts to keep it the same and not changing really anything else um, by that stage, it was a bit of a bit of a um, a combination of factors. You talked about hormone health just then, but how is our gut health linked to our hormone health and our thyroid health? There's lots of ways. So, for starters, I would say at a very simple level you know, we're not what we eat, we're actually what we absorb. And so it's all well and good to be putting in beautiful nutrient-dense foods and maybe taking certain supplements if that's um, appropriate for you. But if you're not actually absorbing those nutrients, those herbs, those minerals, etc., then we're, we're in a state then where you're actually not in a, you're not 
able to absorb the building blocks that are important for either your thyroid health or your hormone health. Um, So that's one connection when we're talking about the gut outwards to hormones and thyroid. The other, another example of a link, because there's probably so many that I could go through, is that it's estimated that somewhere in the vicinity of 20% of your thyroid hormone activation or conversion into a usable form is um, responsible, is sorry, um, reliant on bacteria in your digestive tract. So that's, you know, a huge contribution, like 20% is, is a huge contribution. And so if you have a compromised gut microbiome or digestive health, then arguably you're going to have some impact to your thyroid function. Um, And then when your thyroid function is impacted, it also inhibits your ability to um, make enough of your hormones in the right balance. So as an example of that, you need enough thyroid hormone in your body in order to ovulate. And ovulation is how we, it's probably the main event of your hormonal cycle. Um, And it's how we make progesterone, which is another hormone that's really important for reducing those common symptoms of PMS that some people can experience, like whether it's mood imbalances or spotting or tender breasts. Um, And then I would also say that, you know, when it comes to the connection between all of them, we also know that you know, if you if you don't have a well functioning gut, it or if there are imbalances there, whether that's a bacterial overgrowth or um, food intolerances, it's a source of inflammation. It's a source of almost like stress on the system. And when your body is in a state of stress, it's going to prioritize producing stress hormones to try and make you survive. And that stress hormone production and that survival-based response is often, um, I guess, at the detriment or instead of producing or balancing your hormones in a really, you know, I guess, um, healthy way. So how does stress affect our gut health and how does gut health like affect our mental health? Because it seems like it's a Circle. Yeah, never ending circle. Never ending. <laughs> <laughs> chicken or the egg. Uh, Basically. I, I often say that to clients. I say it is a bit of a chicken or the egg. And that's why treating the whole body is so important because we're not looking at um, band aiding you know, certain systems. We're actually looking at what do we need to put in place to allow holistically the body to rebalance itself, which it knows how to do given the right environment and context. But to to I guess follow that thread of gut and um and and stress that and mental health it, like is that in terms of your digestion and your digestive health and that environment there there are there's a constant communication between your gut and your brain and primarily how that communication happens or one example of how that communication happens is through the vagus nerve, which runs from your brain all the way into your gut. And a really like simple example of this for people that they can probably connect to is like that saying of like feeling sick to my stomach or having butterflies or um, doing a nervous poo. Like we all know that there's these connections between the two and it's, it's primarily because of that connection between the gut and the brain via the vagus nerve. So in, in mental health, it's not just that immediate reaction, but also we know that, again, 
digestion relies or your gut health is the place where absorption happens absorption of um, vitamins minerals are important in actually producing your brain chemicals or your neurotransmitters which allow you then to have more balanced mood or mental health in that way as well in terms of the flip side if you are in a constant state of stress so maybe you are going through a really stressful season or you're burning the candle at both ends when you're constantly in what i call like an adrenalized state or a really um you know fight or flight state your body does not prioritize digestion it prioritizes what we would logically think would be prioritized if we were getting chased by a tiger which is basically out to your periphery so think your arms and your legs to run away from whatever the threat is it's not going to focus on um digesting your food or producing your hormones because if you can imagine yourself in a situation where you feel and you can put yourself in this I mean please don't but in terms of hypothetically like imagine being faced with a really stressful situation you can think of one that you've recently been in and I'm, I'm sure not many people have been chased by a tiger but it might be that you know you're you're about to do a job interview or you're about to go on a first date and the la maybe I'm just the one that gets nervous on those but most people no, I do <laughs> yeah <laughs> The last thing you want to do is eat, right? You're not like, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm absolutely so nervous right now. And gosh, I'd really love a steak. Like that just doesn't happen. And it's your own body's intelligence of going, well, if I don't have the resources or it's not my priority right now to digest when I'm just trying to survive. So it's all about stress perception as well. Mm. And that's why we can all have various life circumstances, situations that contribute to stress and therefore compromise digestion compared to someone else. Obviously, we talk about stress and de-stressing and we talk about stuff like going and meditating or going and get a massage, all of that kind of stuff. Is there ways that you can work with your gut then to help you come out of that de-stress? So is there foods that you can eat? How do you, can you reverse engineer some of that then if they're so closely lined with the vagus nerve yes and no so the 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 most frustrating answer that every every practitioner tends to give is it depends but what i would say with that is that basically if you are going through a stressful season because we all have them in our lives and maybe you're doing you're meditating you're breathing you're trying to do certain things and you, you can't quite negate the situation to the extent that you would like to, then what I would say is something you can do to reduce the stress on your gut or reduce the impact of stress on your gut is to make digestion an easier process. So a couple of ideas here that I often talk to my clients about when they're going through grief or heartbreak or stress like is having more cooked and warming foods or uh, have, which, which are easier to digest because they've partly been broken down for you. You can even think of that yourself, you know, how it's quite an active process to chew a carrot on carrot sticks. And I, have, I love carrot sticks, but in terms of like it's a very active process and that roughage is roughage in your gut. And that's all well and good when you've got, um, you know, the digestive capacity to break that down. But if you don't, giving your body a helping hand by cooking your food more than you're eating raw food 
Um, and also another little uh, idea can be when you're eating proteins to slow cook them. Again, it's just that easier to digest kind of thing. Um, plus, you can also uh, incorporate some smoothies or some things that are partially broken down to aid in that digestive process, which means you're not asking your digestive system to do as much um, as it might do if you were eating cold and raw foods. So things like caffeine, how do they affect, because I know when I have a cup of coffee, it makes me really stressed throughout the day, but it also Mm -hmm. suppresses my urge to eat. So how does caffeine affect that? Yeah, so caffeine, everyone has a different tolerance to caffeine. There are certain um, enzymes in our body that are responsible for breaking down caffeine and that dictates how long it essentially hangs around in your system for. And you certainly can test for that, but most of us know, you know, there's people who are like, could have a a nightcap and go to sleep. Don't recommend it, but there are people who, um, you know, can relate to that statement. Whereas there are other people, perhaps like you, Grace, where you're like, oh, when I have it, I feel it in my system immediately. And so this is kind of layered. I would say that caffeine, um, depending on the timing and the volume that you're having, has the ability to disrupt your blood sugar balance, um, which is closely related to the hormone cortisol, which we often know as our stress hormone. And when we have blood sugar dysregulation, which just means that we're having these um, peaks and dips in blood sugar that are quite sharp as opposed to gentle, um, it is essentially a stress on the body. So it's another thing that we need to then use those survival resources to manage, which is going to take our body away from you know, digestion and um, balancing our hormones and our mood. So that's one part. The other part can be that um, caffeine can be quite stimulating to the gut. And some people can connect with this if they're someone who relies on coffee to have a bowel motion or they notice when they have coffee have they have to go to the bathroom um, to have a bowel motion and that's because caffeine itself can be stimulating to the gut Um, and so you definitely don't want to rely on caffeine for bowel motions but if you know that about yourself it's probably a little bit of a hint that there's some slow or compromised motility or movement in your digestive tract that needs addressing if caffeine's the only way that you can have regular bowel motions. So what other signs and symptoms um, are you seeing when you start to see gut imbalances? So we've obviously talked about thyroid and hormones. What other things are we seeing? Some of the most common um, are, I guess, starting with symptoms that are isolated to the gut, um, which I'll talk about other things outside of that in the moment, but they would be things like experiencing bloating, um, whether that's bloating that's happening quite soon after you've had something to eat. So within one to two hours of finishing eating, that's one symptom, or whether it's bloating that you feel gradually comes on throughout the day is another hint. Um, gas, so excessive gas. So we all do pass wind and that's normal. And I often get the question, well, how do I know if my gas is normal? And my answer to that is if you're aware that you're passing gas or you're known as the, you know, the gassy person in your friend group, then you probably have excessive gas. Whereas if you have to really think that about- used to be me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We've got one with us. <laughs> but you so know. 
But uh, you know, all your friends yeah. know it's not a good thing, people. <laughs> sort it That's out. Right. Sort it out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely sort it out. So you know or someone around you knows and that's a really good hint. Whereas if you're like, gosh, am I gassy? I really have to think about that. Chances are, unless you're someone that has just really low body awareness, um, then you're probably not gassy. So that's one thing. And then, of course, poo. Like there's so much hints within your bowel motions. So a normal bowel motion is one like in terms of how often at least one a day um, is what I would say and probably up to about five a day depending on the person Um, but most people I would say average on one to two sometimes three a day but I would say in my clinical practice experience most people sit in that one to two range they should feel complete so when you've gone and had a bowel motion it shouldn't feel like oh gosh, I've gone, but there's still more in there and I can't quite get it out. Should also feel, it should also have a consistency to it that is like well-formed, but not hard and pebbly. And, you know, everyone will have varied bowel motion consistency from time to time, but you want the average bowel motion that you're having to be well-formed, easy to pass, regular. Um, And if you see things like mucus or blood in your stool, that's a red flag. If you see things like a lot of undigested food in your stool, that's another red flag. If you're seeing um, that your stools are like really shiny or they are floating, that can be another red flag. But we're looking at these kinds of things happening, not just as a once off, but it being something you're noticing, you know, multiple times in a week as well. Um, Abdominal pain, nausea, a sense of like fullness when you first start to eat or just generally low appetite. All All these things can be a hint that there might be some digestive issues. However, gut issues or you know, signs that you need to address your gut health isn't isolated just to digestive type symptoms. It can also be that you've got acne or rosacea or psoriasis or dermatitis or dry skin or nails that are breaking and won't grow. Um, It could be that there are mood imbalances that you can't seem to get on top of despite, you know, using other tools that are at your um, disposal to support that. Um, It can also be that you are lacking in energy or you have a lot of brain fog. And there's always layers to this. And, you know, usually addressing the gut is part of a bigger picture. But remembering that your gut influences absolutely everything in your body to various degrees is really important so that you can always take that into consideration when you're working towards healing. It's Grace here and I want to quickly interrupt the episode because I have a very important question to ask you. Have you been struggling with gas, bloating, constipation or diarrhea? Do you struggle with low immunity, bad skin or breakouts, moodiness and irritability? If you're listening to this and nodding yes to all any of these questions, your gut could be the culprit. Did you know significant changes in gut health can occur just three days after making a dietary change? And it takes 21 days for a healthy gut to create a new lining. That's why we've created our new 21-day gut rebalance program. Learn to use food to heal your body and boost your health. Sign up and save 35% off today. Now let's get back into the episode. So I want to go back to what you said about bloating as Mm. one of the symptoms. So is it just food that causes bloating or can stress 
cause bloating or an imbalance and what can we do to reduce it? Absolutely. Stress can cause bloating, but it comes back to when you are stressed, not in a state where you're rested and you're not in like a rest and digest state, which means that your body often doesn't produce enough digestive enzymes to break down your food, doesn't produce enough hydrochloric acid, which is stomach acid to break down your food, which means that you're just not digesting what you're consuming very well. And that can create that same symptom of bloating, fullness, distension. Um, And the way that I often get people to relate to that is coming back to that connection between you know, eating when you're upset and how that often just feels like food sits in your stomach or it's either just like it's just there and it's not fully digested. And it's because when we're stressed, we're not in a state that is supportive of allowing everything that needs to come on board and online to actually, you know, enter the digestive system. So there's definitely um, a connection there. Uh, And then you can also have low stomach acid separate to stress. Uh, It can be caused from having an underactive thyroid. It could be caused from bacterial imbalances. It could be caused from low levels of zinc. Um, And that also, when you don't have enough stomach acid, can also uh, create that sense of bloating and distension when you're eating, because again, you're not able to break down your food properly. So it leaves that sensation in your body that it's just sitting there undigested. I know, I mean, one in six people, right, are facing infertility in Australia. So one in six couples, mm-hmm. I should say. It's not just females, it's also males. So it's a huge figure um, when it comes to reproduction and how that all happens. And gut health is so important going into that journey, especially when you're talking about the fact that ovulating is the number one. But the number happen create a baby yeah well number one thing that happened when you create a baby but also as a female it's that number one thing that happens in your cycle so it's a it's most important thing that happens in your cycle where you know grace and i have spoken at length on this podcast over the last year about the fact that we it's always been period first in thoughts Mm -hmm. you know everything's always been period led so if something's wrong with your period that's all people ever talk about right from you know the first time that you bleed, everyone talks about yeah. your period. No one talks about that ovulation process. So this obviously goes hand in hand. What are some of the things that you can start doing to, you know, help heal the gut? And also, is there stuff during throughout your period and that, you know, or your monthly cycle, I should say, that are indicators that something's wrong there and that you should be looking at maybe your gut health to help with things like fertility? Yeah, it's a huge, huge question. Um, And what I would say is that if you have, like as an example, if you're someone who experiences um, PMS, um, Mm. particularly if you feel irritable, ragey, everyone's just so annoying, um, or you feel like that burn, like people people who feel it are going to be like, yes, I feel so seen. <laughs> yeah. Um, or if you get yep. premenstrual. Speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> premenstrual headaches or tender breasts, they're all like, they're all clinical signs of having higher amounts of estrogen relative Mm. to progesterone. Now you can test that and I often encourage uh, my clients to do that so that we've got, you know, double confirmation both in symptoms but also in pathology. But if that's happening and, and we know, okay, well, you've got 
higher estrogen relative to progesterone, how that links back into gut health is that your gut and your microbiome is responsible in part for clearing estrogens out of your system once they've used what they need to essentially. And there are, um, you know, when we have imbalances in our digestive tract, that can influence our ability to clear our hormones appropriately. Um, And so starting to work on your gut health is actually how you would begin in part working on rebalancing those hormones in that second half of your cycle. That's one example. Another example is that there's a very close link between what is happening in your gut microbiome and what is happening in your vaginal microbiome. And just as, you know, we talk about gut health a lot and having healthy, um, good gut bacteria and low levels of inflammation in the digestive tract, the same is true for that vaginal microbiome. Um, And, you know, that whole, uh, I guess, environment where ovulation occurs, where implantation, where actual you know, a baby is made, it's still an environment. And so if we've got like gut issues or inflammation going on in that environment generally, that's going to affect the environment locally where we're trying to make a baby essentially. And so it's an important thing to get on on top of. And, you know, sometimes you'll have hints in your period in terms of if you've got heavy periods, period pain in particular, that might be a reason to go and look at your digestive health amongst other things because, again, it comes back down to recognizing that the digestive tract, the digestive system is linked to your ability to uh, ovulate because because it's linked to thyroid hormone production, but it's also linked to your ability to clear hormones and therefore have a nice balance in that second half of your cycle as well. Wow. So it's everything's linked to the vagus nerve, the hormones, yeah. the vagina microbiome. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All linked. Yep. So gut health's kind of important. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> just when you pick it up from this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. I wanted to know, I hear a lot about FODMAP diet and mm. there's a lot of different perspectives on it, but I want to know what does the FODMAP diet do for our digestive system? The FODMAP diet is basically when we are eliminating fermentable types of carbohydrates from our diet. So that just means we're taking away the most common foods that our gut bacteria uh, eat themselves um, and allow them to grow and allow them to essentially survive, right? And in When we're using a low FODMAP diet, in my clinical opinion and experience is we're using it in situations where there is a bacterial overgrowth. And so we're actually not wanting temporarily to feed more of that bacteria there. We're actually wanting to reduce the bacterial load while we correct the the digestive system and then reintroduce. So a, a low FODMAP diet has its therapeutic application when it's indicated, but it should never be done, in my opinion, as a just here, do the low FODMAP diet because you've got IBS or you've got bloating without actually going the step further and saying, well, why do you have a, why do you have an irritable bowel? Why do you have um, an inability to digest these fermentable carbohydrates? It's a bit of a 
it's almost like um, a little bit of a test in terms of if someone does feel much better digestively on a low FODMAP diet, to me, that doesn't say, oh, great, the low FODMAP diet is the right diet for you forever. Just avoid FODMAPs um, indefinitely. It actually, to me, goes, hmm, that's interesting. That means that there's a reason why a reduction in fermentable carbohydrates is creating a more comfortable tummy and I need to find out why that is. And most commonly, it's because of a bacterial overgrowth that can be treated with herbs. Um, In the conventional world, there are also certain medications that can be used to treat it, um, but both have equal, um, I guess, efficacy in doing that. So being um, a natural health practitioner, my preference is to use natural health remedies to correct that depending on that unique person's situation. But a low FODMAP diet isn't something that, in my opinion, should be followed for months and months and years and years because that to me just says we haven't actually corrected the underlying issue. And when we are taking away those fermentable carbohydrates and those fermentable type foods, we're also starving the good bacteria. And we don't want to do that for long periods of time because a diverse microbiome, i.e. a gut that has lots of different types of bacteria bacteria in it, is often one that is uh, better or healthier, at least from we, what we know so far, and it's an ever-evolving field. Um, and also, when we are not putting in some of those uh, higher FODMAP foods for a long time, uh, what happen, What tends to happen is we get a reduction in what's called short-chain fatty acids, which are basically like the fuel for the little cells that line your gut. And so we can kind of create a problem longer term if we just perpetually follow a low FODMAP diet without actually correcting the underlying driver and then aiming to reintroduce those foods as as you're able to. So you just spoke then about um, medication and obviously medication not being on it long term. I have a bit of a personal question all around the stomach acid side of stuff actually. Mm. So I know that you know you're one of the experts in our course and we go into kind of stomach acid and how much you know um, how you know that you've got not enough stomach acid. I'm starting to get reflux so I feel like I'm getting too much stomach acid and that's only something I've had in the last two or three years, but it can be quite mm. bad at night. My partner also mm. gets it and he's been on tablets for ages and I've been trying to get him off it. That's why I said this is a personal question. Yeah. So, sorry, guys, I'm kidnapping the podcast again. I do this occasionally. <laughs> yeah. So stomach acid, talk me through acid reflux, not enough stomach acid. What's the signs there? Because obviously stomach yeah. acid is so important in you know helping to digest and break down foods. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I like to explain is that in reflux, it's not always or not often that you have too much stomach acid. It's that it's coming back up where it shouldn't be. And so because our our um, stomach is naturally acidic, when that um, little, it's like a little flap that kind of sits between your esophagus and your stomach, when that is it's it's lax, it's kind of just letting anyone in and it's just flapping open. Um, that means that your stomach acid... Sounds a bit acid, of a slut, my stomach acid. Yeah, it gets around. <laughs> yeah. It gets around. And so it just, it rises up through that esophagus. And of course, if you've got something acidic, 
in an environment that is not supposed to be acidic, i.e. in your esophagus, it's supposed to be acidic in your stomach, then you're going to feel that burn. And so medically, the way that they treat that is to give you um, basically proton pump inhibitors, which inhibit, it makes your stomach acid basically alkaline so that when that when that reflux happens, when that, you know, the contents rises up your esophagus, you don't feel that heartburn or that burn because what's rising up is not acidic, it's alkaline. And short term in in some situations, um, while you figure out why is it actually, why is the reflux occurring in in the first place, there is a small argument, perhaps that short term, there's a place for them, but I kind of personally think there are better ways around it depending on the person. However, what we don't want to happen and the reason often why, you know, medical practitioners are prescribing PPIs is because you don't want acid rising in your esophagus for long periods of time because there will be damage that's done. But the, I guess the, the bone I have to pick in that um, whole picture is that I don't think it's good enough to just put a band-aid on that and not actually go, well, why is the reflux happening in the first place? And there can be so many reasons for that. It can be a structural thing, um, which is why, you know, at some point if it, if reflux is a recurrent thing for you, having an endoscope um, or a gastroscopy where they actually look in and see is there anything structurally a problem. Um, for some people, uh, being uh, overweight or obese or even in pregnancy where everything's just squished everywhere, um, that can be another contributing factor. And if that's the if that's part of someone's situation, then encouraging healthy, sustainable weight loss can be part of that, resolving that problem. Stress can also be another concern in terms of um, things rising back up. And so too can certain parasites or bacterial overgrowth. So to to me, it's really about going through a process of elimination to figure out, well, what is contributing to this person's reflux? And then also while we're sorting out why the reflux is happening, uh, also making sure we're putting things in to protect that esophagus. So in my clinical practice, I might be using things like slippery elm or marshmallow or chamomile or um, different things that are going to be soothing to that esophagus and, and to that whole digestive tract. But again, it's a it's a, ba- a helpful Band-Aid, but it's a Band-Aid while we address why it's coming up in the first place. But it's not, in my opinion, not a good idea to be on um, proton pump inhibitors or anti antacid kind of medication for long periods of time because if you are, you're compromising your ability to absorb and activate your nutrients, you're compromising your ability to break down your proteins, um, and you're also putting yourself more at risk of having a parasite or a bacterial overgrowth because part of why, why our stomach is, is acidic is to kill things that come in when we eat food um, or when we, you know, touch something and then, you know, wipe our mouth. It's, I guess, the body's way of a natural kind of antibiotic or way of uh, ensuring that we're not just constantly exposed to things that could create a problem in our system. Is there foods that you can eat that can help with acid reflux? Yeah, it's probably more about what you 
should not eat yep. to um, to do it rather than than eat. So if you are currently experiencing acid reflux, we know that some of the foods that can worsen that or contribute to that are spicy foods um, and also foods that are quite acidic in nature. So um, caffeine, alcohol can also be an issue or um, acidic type foods like uh, tomatoes or concentrated tomato products. Um, Sometimes for some people, uh, citrus-based foods as as well can create an issue. But again, that's more a, I see that as something to implement while you buy yourself time to figure out why it's happening in the first place. So it's a bit of a, let's find relief. Um, The other thing that's important to do if you're experiencing reflux from controlling the symptoms is most people do better with smaller, more frequent meals as opposed to three meals a day. Um, And again, it's a temporary solution to a problem that needs addressing at a root cause level. Um, and that's that's probably what I'd recommend if you're just like in the throes of it and you're trying to diet, you're trying to manage those symptoms and staying mm-hmm. sitting upright after your meals so you've got a chance for everything to to kind of go down and also just taking some deep breaths before you start to eat your meal so that you've got more of a chance for your digestive enzymes and what is there to be able to break down that food. So I mean one of the take homes that I've got from this podcast is really that food elimination is not the answer, right? It's a method to being able to help in the short term while you figure out what's going on in the long term. So how does someone work between what is a food intolerance or as you spoke about is something that's going to help with symptoms as opposed to the root cause and what is actually a food allergy? So a food allergy involves a different part of the immune system and a food allergy is going to come on generally within hours of consuming that food and presents in often more of like what we traditionally think of an allergy type reaction. So it might be um, like hives or or, um, swelling, you know, in your mouth or in your throat or in other areas of your body, or it might be feeling like hot or vomiting or nausea. So it's quite quick is what it is. Whereas food intolerances are more delayed reactions. So that can be anything from hours to a few days to show up in the system. And I would say food allergies, um, sometimes they can change over time, but if you are allergic to a food, it's not something that I would recommend continuing to consume in the hopes that you'll become unallergic to it. I often think that requires more of a a one-to-one practitioner support in um, addressing whether it is something that can be um, overcome and that's done often through very strategic and monitored exposure. But food intolerances, most food intolerances are more of a symptom of an underlying issue than just an overt food intolerance. In saying that, I do still think that some of us do better consuming and avoiding various types of foods. And I would say gluten and dairy are probably two of the key examples of that. Mm. So there are going to be some people where their intolerance to gluten or dairy is based on um, a compromised gut environment. And once they fix up the gut, they're able to consume those things. For some people, it'll be based on their intolerance will be based on the fact that they've currently got a lot of inflammation or immune dysregulation um, in their system. 
And once that's addressed, they can find that they can introduce more foods. An example I'll give there is a lot of people with autoimmune conditions. So example, like Hashimoto's, which Mm. is a thyroid um, autoimmune condition is a really common one. They find that they have all these food intolerances um, and then they get pregnant and suddenly they can eat whatever they want. And that's because in your um in pregnancy your immune system changes to become i guess a little bit more accepting of things because it needs to because you've got foreign dna i.e dna from the male partner or um, the sperm coming into your body and so you can't just be on full high alert you have to have a little bit of a laid back approach in there to allow actually um you know a, a human to grow which means that often people find that in pregnancy things that they were previously intolerant to they're like oh actually like i'm eating this uh gluten and it's not causing a symptom or i'm having dairy and i'm not feeling as reactive as i normally would um but i would say with still just on the thread of food intolerances if you correct your gut imbalances and you correct your auto autoimmune or immune imbalances or inflammation and you still feel like actually when I eat that food, I don't feel as good as I do when I don't have that food. I do think that that's okay to avoid a small, you know, a small amount of whatever it might be for some people. Like I don't necessarily think that absolutely every person on the planet can thrive off every single quote unquote food group or food type. I think that what we're looking at is not wanting you to have just this laundry list of food intolerances that you have to avoid, but more being able to tolerate a various broad range of foods without symptoms. But maybe there's one or two things where you're like, I can have a little bit of that, but I feel better not having it frequently. And that's a pretty normal place to get to. I think it's quite interesting. Um, I've read quite a lot about gluten and mm. gluten in the Western society, or actually I shouldn't say Western society, but gluten in places like Australia and America and Britain to a certain extent and gluten intolerances. And then those people are able to go to places like France and mm. are able mm. to have more gluten product and it not affects yeah. them whatsoever. And I think there is something in the way that we process food. And obviously, I'm part of I Quit Sugar. My hand is up. I don't mm. like processed food anyway. <laughs> mm. But there's something in the way that we process food in our societies that obviously means that over time we're taking in more of these processes which are affecting the way that we fundamentally break down certain products. But I think, you know, if we take that back out and obviously it's one of those things that I think it gets built up in your system over years. So, Mm. you know, if, for example, if you did a science experiment on your nine-month-old baby, I just happened to have one of those, and... And and gave them certain types of gluten and stuff. It would be very interesting to see how they react um, ongoing yeah. versus how the normal society is. That's just a that's just something I've been following, and I think it's really really interesting. Yeah, totally. It's you know the way that uh, wheat um, and gluten containing grains are grown um, is different uh, in in Europe, for example, and there tends to be lower levels of gluten, even in the gluten-containing grains. Um, Also, I think that glyphosate and spraying of grains is different 
over there as well. And that certainly has, um, you know, a in my opinion, a, contribu a contribution to how well or not well things are tolerated. Um, and so I definitely think, and also often overseas, um, particularly in Europe, they're more traditionally prepared um, as well. And so I think there are lots of factors that come into play for sure. And food intolerances can be such a overwhelming and tricky thing to navigate. And so I, I always just encourage people, if you're feeling that way, then just get get some help to just unmuddy the waters for you to allow you to move forward. And always remember that just because you've had an intolerance, not an allergy, but intolerance to something at one point in time, doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. So being open to change when, um, you know, like as you evolve and as things evolve as well, because one pet peeve I have is when people are encouraged to do food intolerance testing, when they've got active gut issues, they come up with all these food intolerances, are told to avoid those foods, and then they carry that with them as something they have to continue to do forever, which is absolutely not true. Because once you heal the gut, you're not going to be reacting to they, those same foods. Like the reason why in those situations that you're reacting to so many different foods is because there's something going on in your digestive system that's allowing that to happen, not that those foods are causing the digestive issues in the first place. Amazing. This is obviously one of the reasons why you're one of our experts in the Gut Health Program because your knowledge in this area has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for joining. I've honestly, I've had such an enjoyable hour having a chat to you. Thanks, Nat. Like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.